As we get started this morning, I just need to begin with a real short confession. I have a terrible sense of direction. That's my confession. I have an absolutely terrible sense of direction. Now, I know that most men believe that they have been born with an innate sense of direction, a compass. Well, perhaps that is so. Some women disputing this? Could be. Well, if it's true, mine got overlooked at the factory. Because I just got to tell you, I, it's terrible. It's terrible. I always choose the wrong direction when I'm driving the car. Always. In fact, there was a time that I can remember, it was quite a few years ago, but I, I came to a T intersection. You know, where you come, stop sign, you can only go left or right. Now, no, ordinarily, I said to myself, now, you have a terrible sense of direction. You always turn the wrong way. And so what I thought is that, that normally I would turn right here. So what I'll do is I'll turn left. Should have turned right. It's terrible. It's just terrible. Well, many of you perhaps do not struggle physically with your sense of direction, but I think we all, to one degree or another, and from time to time, struggle spiritually with our sense of direction. We lose our way, we get distracted. We lose sight of the goal. Let me ask you just a couple of questions this morning, kind of diagnostic questions for you to think about as we begin together. Where do you turn first in your time of need? Where do you go first in time of need? Let's say it's a physical problem. Is your first thought the doctor? Or or maybe there's some kind of relational problem that you're having. And so the question is, do you do you turn there first to your friends or your family? Where do you go? Where do you turn first? What do you do when you're feeling down? One of those mornings, you know, you get up and you just don't feel good. Where do you turn to? Where do you go? What do you do? Life's problems seem like they're they're going to overwhelm you. Where do you turn first? Maybe, maybe you've noticed that your zeal for Christ is not burning quite as hot as it once did. Maybe the, the fire is just kind of backed down a little bit. The, the pot on the stove is no longer at a rolling boil. It's just kind of sitting back there warm, but, but you couldn't cook anything in it. You ever experienced that? Maybe, maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe that's your descriptive of your condition right now. You walked in here this morning and you're feeling somewhat overwhelmed with life. You got problems. You're not sure where to go, 
what to do. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Because the Bible has something to say to us with regard to this phenomenon. And by the way, if this is your situation this morning, you are not alone. Page 1198, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1198 will take you to Hebrews chapter 4, which is where I want you to turn. You know, I bet if we were to be really candid with each other this morning and do some sort of a survey or poll or something like that, we would find that more of us are feeling overwhelmed than are not. More of us are struggling right now with life than are not. So it's, it's not just one or two people that we want to speak to this morning. We want to speak to all of us because this is the human condition and we're all part of it. In fact, if we're really honest, we probably would say we have more bad days than good days. Life is hard. It's easy to lose sight of Christ. In fact, we've entitled this morning's message, Coming Back to Jesus. Coming Back to Jesus, because that's what we have to do. That's where we have to go. That's the place where we have to turn when life assaults us. And it's not just a one-time turn. It's It's a constant process. We lose our way all the time and and we need to get back on the path. And so that's what I want to look at with you this morning. The passage, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 4. And and as we do that, the writer here has for us two essential steps on the path that, that leads us back to Jesus. We want to come back. We there's something that we have to do. There's a we have to change direction and we have to we have to do something to come back. It's, it's not that Jesus has left us, beloved. It's that we have turned our backs on him. We have we have deviated from the way. We've allowed life to overwhelm us. Become too, too heavy for us. We've lost sight of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book in the New Testament because we don't know who the author is. Oh, people like to speculate on one and another, and there are many potentially viable candidates. But the truth of the matter is we don't really know for sure who wrote this book. But we do know something about the situation of the recipients of this letter. That is that they were Jewish Christians Jewish Christians in the first century, sometime prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. The reason we know that is because in the letter, the author does not refer to the destruction of the temple. And, it, and his purpose in writing to them would be, would be greatly strengthened if he could point to that historical event, and yet he doesn't. So we're pretty confident that it was composed sometime prior to that day. But he's writing to a to a group of believers, primarily believers, but there's scattered in among them some make believers, that is people who who believe or think or act like they are committed to Christ, but in reality they're not. 
And there are also a a few, if we can call it this, uh, seekers or inquirers. That is, people who are are attaching themselves to this early congregation to try to figure out what this Christianity thing is all about. Let's check it out and, and see what it's all about. Very common, by the way, of all churches. This church here today almost 2,000 years later, is made up of believers, a few make-believers, and a few inquirers. Very typical. Very typical. This group of Jewish Christians is in, a, in an interesting place and predicament in their life, and, and that is they are being pressured with regard to their commitment to Jesus Christ. They are suffering, in fact, You can keep your thumb there if you'd like or whatever, but but turn ahead to chapter 11. Let me just show that to you. They're being pressured. Chapter 11, verse 32. Actually, not chapter 11 and verse 32. I've lost my... Ah, let's see. Well, you'll have to take my word for it. Ah, there it is. Chapter 10, verse 32. There we go. Chapter 10, verse 32. That's terrible when you lose your way, you know. (laughs) Got to find your way back to Jesus. All right. Chapter 10... And verse 32, I was looking at chapter 11, I was thinking that does not say what it's supposed to. All right, here we go. (laughs) Chapter 10, verse 32, he says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who are so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So they are being being persecuted, they are being pressured because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. They have been ostracized from their community, the Jewish community. And they've actually suffered physical deprivation because of it. And so they're in, a, they're in a quandary here. The quandary is that they, they still want to hold on to Christ, but they'd like to reach back and, and hang on to Judaism too, to, to blunt the sharp edges of their Christian faith, to, to ease their problems by being more socially acceptable in the confines of, of their friends and family. And so they're trying to hold on and reach back, and the writer says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You must let go. And in fact, the whole theme of the book, chapter 13, chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. I'm pretty sure about that one. The whole theme of the book in these two verses. Where the writer says, therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Hence. Let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Jesus suffered outside the camp, as it were. He 
He suffered outside of Judaism and he's saying, you go out to him and you stay out there. You don't come back in. If you want to summarize the whole message, it's leave the temple. Leave the temple and cling to Christ. So he's writing to these people who are feeling the pressure. They've lost their way to one degree or another. They're they're meandering around. And so he's writing to strengthen them and to call them back. Go back to chapter 4, verses 14 and following. And here I believe there are two essential steps on this path back to Jesus that we we can learn something from this morning. The first step is in verse 14. And by the way, on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline if you'd like to follow along. That first step is to confess your commitment publicly. First step on the path back to Jesus is to confess your commitment publicly. Take a look at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now notice the way the verse opens up. Since then little conjunction in the Greek. And what it signals to us is that there is a resumption of a a topic that had been previously introduced, but has been interrupted. And so the writer is getting back to that which he had previously introduced. The topic he had previously introduced is back in chapter 3, verse 1. Let your eyes just go over there. Where he says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Then beginning in verse 7 and running all the way through verse 13 of chapter 4, we have a little parenthetical, a little change of topic. Where he exhorts them to to remember their forefathers and how they They fell away from God and were punished in the desert because of it. So he's getting back around now to the topic he had first introduced, which is the priesthood of Christ, the high priesthood of Christ. By the way, a topic that will run all the way through chapter 10 and verse 18. It's the major theme of this book. Probably, by the way, a better chapter division would instead of be in chapter 5, verse 1, would have been here in verse 14 of chapter 4. It probably is logically a better chapter break in terms of keeping thoughts together. But what he is doing here in verse 14, chapter 4, is he is reminding his readers about the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ compared to the Aaronic priesthood. The priesthood that they have known all of their lives. The priesthood that was established by God and had been in place for two millennia. And he is now responding to that reality and saying that Christ himself is a greater high priest. A greater high priest. That Jesus fulfills the shadows, the typology of the high priesthood of Aaron. And it is Christ himself 
that he says, who has passed through the heavens, you see at verse 14, that he has entered into the presence of God. And unlike the high priest Aaron, Christ has not only gone in himself, but he has brought us with him. That's going to be his argument. Notice the title here, Great High Priest. This title is never used for the priesthood of Aaron. It is only reserved for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He alone is the great high priest, the great high priest. And it's it refers to the essential nature. This this idea of greatness refers to the essential nature of Christ himself, not to the idea of his priesthood being great or superior, but to him himself being great or superior. Christ is the great high priest because he is the very son of God. That's the idea. That's what makes his priesthood great. They have to think with me a little bit. It, for them, it was easy that this was their culture. For us, it's not our culture, so we have to think a little. We have to think back to the Old Testament and, and think back to the priesthood and, and how it operated on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, after first making sacrifice for himself, he would then enter into the Holy of Holies and he would splash blood upon the mercy seat, thereby symbolically expiating or wiping out the sin of the people that had accumulated for the year. Only Aaron could go in and he could only go once per year and he could only stay a short time, then he must leave again. In fact, the scripture says that they had to sew bells on the hem of his robe when he went in so that they could hear him moving around in there and know that God had not struck him dead because he had somehow messed up the ritual. So it was a very scary, foreboding kind of activity that the high priest would undertake. He would go in once a year. He would go in for a very short time and then he would retreat again from the presence of God. But not Jesus Christ. Christ's high priesthood, when he enters in, he sits down, chapter 1, verse 3. It says he sat down after he made purification of sins at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, that's significant because nowhere in the, the tabernacle or the temple were there any chairs. There was no place to sit down. The priest never sat down because his work was never finished. But Christ, it says, went in, stayed in, and sat down when he had finished his great work. He didn't retreat from the presence of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. This heavenly high priest, verse 14, where the writer identifies for us as Jesus, the Son of God. Do you see it? Jesus, the Son of God. By, by placing those, those names side by side, I, I think he's speaking about the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he is he is giving us great confidence in this high priest, this one who can sympathize with us in our in our needs and has the power to represent us before God perfectly. He is not like the earthly high priest limited, but he is the great high priest who lives on forever. He is Jesus Complete in his humanity. In fact, chapter 2, verse 17, it says he had to be made like his brethren in all things 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So it's the humanity of Jesus Christ that he's he's stressing here by the name Jesus. And then the son of God stresses his divinity, his omniscience, his his omnipotence, that he is God almighty. Together. In human flesh. So, therefore, in, in light of this reminder of who he is and, and what he's done, notice how we're to respond, verse 14. Not, not with just some sort of private statement of, yes, I believe that. But, he says at the end of verse 14, let us hold fast our confession of faith. That they are to return to a public confession of faith in Christ. That's what he's calling them to. He's saying that, that he is our great high priest and, and therefore we must confess that reality. Not hold it as a private personal conviction just between me and God. But it is something that, we, that is so significant that we must make it a pillar of who we are and a public declaration. A public declaration. Let us hold fast our confession, he says. Now, when would they have made this confession of Christ? When would it have happened? Probably it would have happened at their baptism. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. After Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, the Jews are under great conviction there. And they said, what must we do? And he says, repent and, and be baptized in the name of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That one who 40 days before you had been disowning and saying that he was cursed of God, you now say publicly that he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And you identify yourselves publicly with that. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. So he is, he is calling them back to that confession, that public declaration of Jesus Christ. One Bible commentator, preacher Kent Hughes, he writes the following. Let me quote him here for you. He says, Today, in our individualistic, privatistic world, we often neglect the wholesome benefit of public confession of the truth we hold. When we are going through hard times, we need to confess Christ as our apostle and high priest to own his magnificent ministry as our own, to clutch it close. We ought not to limit our confession to congenial company alone. There are times to confess him in unfriendly surroundings. Such confession may be just what our soul needs. Confess and embrace your high priest, he says. He's right. There is a time to confess him publicly. And that time is when we find ourselves wandering from the path of life. Under the pressure of circumstances. Maybe even those that ridicule us for our faith. Those that would seek to to want us to blunt the sharp edges of our Christianity. It is that time. That we are to publicly confess him as Christ. Not just our private conviction, but our public declaration. This is my Savior. This is my Lord. It is him whom I am 
following. We always call it in our family, planting our flag. Planting our flag. What we mean by that, or what we meant by that, was to think back to the early conquistadors, the early discoverers from Europe who discovered the new world. And and whenever they found a, a section of ground that had yet been not discovered, that they would come and they would claim it for Spain or they would claim it for France or they would claim it for England or they would claim it for Portugal. And what they would do is they would, they would jab their flag in the ground and they would, they would say, I claim this land for... And they'd name whoever the monarch was. Well, symbolically, that's, that's what we do. That's what we taught our children to do, is to plant your flag, that is to stake out your territory, to make your claim known as to who you are. Who you are. Speaking up for Christ is is got to be one of the hardest things that God calls us to do. Would you agree? It is very, very difficult. We live in a world that does not want to hear the message. It is hostile to us. We are surrounded by, by a cacophony of voices that wants us to just be quiet. It's fine if you have a private religion. But keep it private. How dare you bring it into the public marketplace? How dare you bring it into the workforce? How dare you bring it into the classroom? How dare you bring it out into the grocery store? How dare you you bring it out to your neighbor across the fence? How dare you speak of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Keep your religion to yourself. Two things we're not supposed to talk about, right? Politics is one and religion's the other. Well, it's probably a good idea not to talk about politics. But our commitment to Christ, our commitment to Christ needs to be made and it needs to be made publicly. I struggle with this. I just have to tell you, I really, really find it hard to do. I find it hard to speak about the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life in public settings. I find it hard. I've been a follower of Christ for more than 30 years It is not any easier now than it ever was. It is difficult. I'm a coward. And I don't like to rock the boat. I I want to be well-liked. So it's very easy for me to keep my religion private, as it were. To try to witness for Christ through my life, my exemplary life. There's only one problem with that. You know what it is, don't you? My life's not so exemplary. And in fact, if I do not open my mouth to speak, what I do is I allow the world to define me as they choose to define me. Yeah, I can, I can love people and I can, and I can refrain from overt sin and, and live an, an outwardly righteous and moral life. And I, I try to do that. Power of the Spirit. But if I will not open my mouth, what it what it allows people to do is to say, you're a nice guy. What a nice guy you are. It's when I open my mouth, all of a sudden I go from being a nice guy to being. That jerk who always messes up the family gathering, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. This is what I have found helpful. 
What I have found helpful is when I'm entering into a situation where I know I must speak out for Christ, is I pray and ask God to help me. Ask God to help me open my mouth and be bold. And then immediately, as soon as I can, and sometimes I do it pretty awkwardly, I declare my allegiance to Christ. So the guy's talking about baseball, and and I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to say, but Christ is Lord. (laughs) So the Giants, they're going to win the World Series. Yeah, they probably will, but Christ is Lord. (laughs) He looks at you. (laughs) But I got it out. See, I said it. And now I can begin to talk. I've declared my allegiance. I find that if I can do that, and hopefully not as awkwardly as that, but but if I can do that, I can begin now to speak about my allegiance to this Lord. I can now work it into the conversations. But if I don't do that, what happens is I stand on the sideline and I'm kind of, but, 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 you know, I'm, I'm trying to find some time to open my mouth and say something. And the conversation just seems to go on and on and on. And there's never an opportunity to talk about Christ. So I think it works to jam it in the ground quickly up front. Awkwardly, if necessary, and declare your commitment to Jesus Christ. And then begin to speak of his glories. First step on the road back, beloved, is to declare your commitment to Christ publicly. Confess your commitment and do it publicly. Do it publicly. That takes us to our second step. Second step on the road back to Jesus, is to come close to him confidently. Come close to him confidently. Confess your commitment publicly and then come close to him confidently. Verses 15 and 16. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Interesting. What does Jesus know about my troubles? What does he know about my troubles? See, it's it's easy to think about Jesus in his in his godness, if I can say it that way. That he is indeed second person of the triune God. And to think to yourself, but yeah, he, he lived as a man among us, but, but see, he was God. And, and so when it gets really, the, the going is really rough, all he has to do is hit the God button and he kind of just vaults over it. And then he moves on. So we think of Jesus as as a man who who walked about 18 inches above the earth. He didn't really go through what I'm going through. He doesn't really know what I'm up against. You see, because he was God. He was God. He could always get out if he needed to. The writer says, oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Jesus is not limited in his ability to identify with his people at all. Beyond that, some 
some old high priest, some ironic high priest, some human high priest, he can't identify better. It is Christ who can identify with us. Now, wait a minute. Jesus couldn't sin, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? That he could not sin, that it's impossible for God to sin. And he is God, yes? Fully God, yes? So he couldn't sin, right? Right. So then in what meaningful sense does he know what my life is like? Back to the God button thing. Well, the answer to the question, my friends, takes us deep into the mysteries of the Incarnation. That's jumping off into the deep end of the pool, as it were. The creator of the universe, the transcendent one, the the maker of heaven and earth enters into space and time and walks as a man. The writer says he he knows our weaknesses and he sympathizes with them. And that is staggering. Absolutely staggering. The writer makes here in verse 15, three amazing assertions about our great high priest. First, he says that he is sympathetic with us. Sympathetic with us. Sympatheo in the Greek, we get the English word sympathize from it. And it and it means to have feelings with. He has feelings with us. He sympathizes with us. Now, the Jews, they understood that God had a deep compassion for his people. Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14 Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God was compassionate on his people and they knew it. But this takes it up a a whole new level to think about him sympathizing with us, to, to feel things with us. He's not just compassionate on our our sufferings, looking at them from the outside. He has entered in with us to our difficulties. He has truly experienced life himself, just like you have. He knows what it's like. God became flesh and lived among us. He was fully human. Not was, he is fully human. And he is subject to all, or was subject to all the weaknesses and limitations of unfallen humanity. Verse 15. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize or, or feel with our weaknesses. The word weaknesses here, it's a reference to frailties, not to sin, but to frailties. He was ignorant. Just like you and I are ignorant of certain things. And that provides an opportunity for pride to come in. He was hungry and tired at times. That provides an opportunity for selfishness to take over. He suffered personal loss and desertion and 
That provides tremendous opportunity for anxiety and doubt to creep into our hearts. He was ridiculed, which gives temptation to anger. He was disappointed, provides opportunities for ingratitude, and he felt pain, opportunities for fear. He knew our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. He he entered into our weaknesses. Beyond that, he was tempted. See it? Verse 15. Our high priest who has been tempted in all things. Means he, he faced temptations exactly like ours. Now, that doesn't mean that he experienced every single individual temptation that every single individual human being experiences. He did not experience the temptations that are unique to a woman. Because he was a man. He did not experience the temptations that are unique to a married person because he wasn't married. He doesn't, did not experience the temptations that are unique to an elderly person because he died in the prime of life. But that does not mean that he was not tempted like us in all things. That is, that he, he experienced the essential temptations of what it means to be human. And beyond that, in his case, the temptation superseded anything you or I have ever experienced. Ever experienced. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says there are three channels through which temptation comes. Three portals through which Satan assaults the citadel of our soul. And they are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's how he comes at us. And you know, it's interesting because if you look at the record of the temptations of Christ in the wilderness where Satan directly assaulted him, he he went at him in these areas. He was hungry, it said. He had fasted 40 days. Turn the stone into bread, he said. Appealing to his hunger and his flesh. Satan offered him the kingdoms of the world if he would but bow down, appealing to the lust of his eyes. Satan taunted him to throw himself off the temple, right? Prove to the world that you're Messiah. God will lift you up. The boastful pride of life. The essential temptations that come as a result of our humanity, Jesus felt them all. He felt them all. And yet, verse 15, he is without sin, apart from sin. The idea here being communicated is not so much that he was sinless, but that his temptations came from the outside rather than from the inside. Some of our temptations spring up from past behaviors. Old sins cast long shadows. Not so with Christ. But his temptations were just as real. And and he's making a statement here, I believe a definitive statement at the end of verse 15, that Jesus' temptations never arose from a sinful disposition common to all fallen children of Adam. But his temptations came to him by virtue of his essential humanity. Some might say that 
Since Jesus had no sin nature, he, he therefore didn't experience the difficulty with temptations like I do. The writer would say to you, nothing could be further from the truth. Christ bore the greater weight because Satan only exerts on you or I sufficient force to knock us over. And most of us are like an old rotted fence post. He doesn't have to push too hard. Not so with Christ. Christ never gave in. He endured temptation all the way until it had been exhausted. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. Whose hands ache more in a tug of war? The guy who lets go of the rope on the first strong pull? Or the guy who hangs on till the end of the fight? Whose hands hurt more? Such is Christ. He hung on to the rope, as it were, all the way to the end. He knows what you're feeling. He has felt it himself. And he has conquered it for you. Therefore, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Therefore, indicates that we must do something. There's an action we must take in, in response to this great high priest. Who knows the weakness of our flesh. He can sympathize with us because he has been there, done that. And what we must do is take advantage of his availability. Let us draw near with confidence, he says. Not with heads hung low. We don't enter the presence of Christ with our, with our heads hung low. The picture here is of boldness. Do you see it? Let us therefore draw near how? With confidence, that is boldness, literally with, a, with an openness or a plain speaking, a, a freedom of speech. Oh, Jesus, you know, I'm such a wretch and such a worm and I don't you know why you would even want me. And that's not the means by which we enter into the throne of grace. You are a wretch. You are a worm. You're used to it. And I don't know why he wants you. And I don't know why he wants me. But he has chosen us to make us his children. And so we are to enter into his presence, it says here, with confidence. That is, with an openness or a plain speaking about us. Again, think of, think of the original audience. God was distant from them. He was, he was shielded from them. The, the access to him was in, in waves or, or barriers that, that had to be penetrated in order to come into his presence. And only a few people could do it. Depending who you were, you could get a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. And it was like a, a narrowing down of a funnel until only one guy can come into his presence. And him only once a year and, and only for a short time. How different it is. Matthew tells us when, when Christ died, the veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, was, was torn in two from top to bottom. 
access to God was thrown wide open for his people. So draw near. Go on in. It's, it's wide open. The door is open. It's available. Picture here is a walk right in and ask what you need. Walk right in and tell them what you need. The idea is not disrespect. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. It's not that we, that we walk into the presence of the Almighty God in a flippant way. That's not the point. The point is that it's, that it's unrestricted now through Christ. It's bold. No hesitation. No tentativeness. God wants the best for His children. He, he wants to forgive our sin. He wants to, to enable us through grace to persevere. So He provides His gift. You see it? The end of the verse, twofold. Available here from the throne of grace that we might receive first mercy and second that we find grace to help in time of need. That we might find mercy from Him. Forgiveness for our past trespasses. A relieving of our present distress. Struggling right now? God wants you to come right into the throne room. Right up. Just walk on up and say, help me. I need help. He might give you grace to help in time of need. He might give you what you need to see you through. Now, it's probably not likely that God will immediately resolve your problem. In fact, it's far more likely that what he'll do is he will give you the, the mercy that you need in time of the grace you need in time of in that time of need to be able to endure through the difficulty that you're involved in. That's what he wants us to come to him and, and ask for and ask boldly. Say, say, Christ, I. I feel like I'm going down for the count. I feel like the, the waves are washing over my head. I'm not sure I can hang on. Help me. Help me. He says it's there for you if you'll ask. If you're struggling with sin this morning, if you've strayed from the path of righteousness, if, if things seem to be growing darker for you in your Christian life, and turn around. Turn around. Put the, put the sun in your face and walk boldly into the presence of Christ himself. For he desires to give you mercy and grace to help in time of need. The question for me and for you is, will you come? Will you come? Let's pray. Our Father, as we participated in the Lord's table earlier, we were given the visible reminder of what Christ has accomplished for us. By His death, burial, and resurrection, sin has been atoned for. Though we have been made Your children, and that access into Your presence is now 
wide open and available. That we come to you not in our own strength or power, not by virtue of our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of another, that is Jesus Christ, your son. And he is our great high priest. He he does know what our life is like. He he knows what temptations come upon us. And he sympathizes with us. And he has provided for us access to the throne of grace. And so this morning, O Lord, we come even now. Our Father, struggling with great difficulties in life, physical problems that seem to overwhelm us. O Lord, we turn and come back to Christ, come to Jesus. Father, we have difficulties in our homes, problems in our marriages, problems with our children, relational stresses and strains, problems at work. Oh, Lord, we come back to Jesus. Our Father, struggling with sin, seems to be getting the better of us. Oh, Lord, we come back to Jesus. Let us confess Him publicly and our commitment to Him. And then let us come racing back. For it is in His presence and there alone that we find grace to help in time of need. Amen.